All right, on now to George Whitfield. And since we spent a lot of time on Jonathan Edwards, we're going to need to condense things with Whitfield and probably a little bit so with the Wesleys. Uh, that doesn't mean they're any less important. Uh, it's just the, the nature of the beast, so to speak. Uh, but Whitfield was uh, an Englishman. And uh, again, you'll find a pattern with many of these guys who grew up in Christian homes but never made that faith their own until as teenagers, older teenagers in the university where they came to grips with, with their relationship to God. And part of that uh, road to the relationship with God for, for Whitfield came about as a result of the Holy Club. Now, Whitfield and the Wesley brothers both <coughs> attended Oxford University and they were on a different strata, so to speak. They were... Um, different castes, you could say, where Whitfield, working through college, was not allowed to speak to the upperclassmen or to those who were in, a, in the higher strata. But then Charles Wesley took note of him and invited him to a club that they were getting going called the Holy Club. Now, uh, the Holy Club sounds strange. It was actually the derogatory name given to them by, by other people looking on because if you're in England, it, you're born into the church, you're already a Christian. Why are you trying to be the super duty you know, Christian? You, you don't need to love God that much. That's the type of uh, feeling that you get uh, with that term. And then uh, it was through that that, that uh, Whitfield was working his way to God, but then realized after reading about uh, man's position uh, to God's position he realized that he can't work towards God, that he must trust in what God has already done. And at that point, he's lit on fire. Uh, he loves God and wants to tell everyone about him. That sanctification that they tried to do in the flesh disappeared, and there was a new sanctification that was brought in uh, through, through preaching. And uh, he lit on fire all of the England countryside, because where he wasn't allowed into uh, certain churches, at first he was. And then he wanted to talk to those people, he wanted to evangelize those people who had not had regular uh, opportunities to attend a church. So he preached to miners and farmers out on the, in the countryside. And then when he came back to town, the ministers of the churches wouldn't let him back into the church because, oh, you're trying to do your own thing, you're not doing it within our churches, so we're not going to let you in. Yeah, that was a scandal. I mean, to, to <clears throat> preach the gospel outside of a church building was scandalous. Absolutely. So, and we, we're going to encounter that again in the next couple of guys we'll talk about, but you know, Whitfield is, in, is encountering this where he's willing to preach the gospel wherever he can open his mouth, um, but there, the, those in power in the state church are willing to say, no, you, you, you preach in the church building. That's the only appropriate place for the gospel to be, to be presented. And as we'll see, what he was preaching may have actually stepped on the toes of some of these ministers because he thought everyone needed to be born again, whether you were born into the church or not. Can you imagine that? You actually need to repent of your sins and come to Jesus in faith? Uh, we take that for granted. But in a society where everyone was, quote-unquote, religious, but very few may have actually had the desire, that relationship to love and serve God, this was uh, 
not popular with the ministers because it took away from their prestige, but it was very popular with the people because the people recognized that he cared enough about them to come tell them about Jesus, about the requirement of faith. And so the people all throughout the countryside and even in the towns now loved him anywhere that he was not accepted in a, in a church. He would set up outside on a street corner and start preaching. And people would love him. They would come up to him during the week and just hug him and say, thank you very much for, for preaching the Word of God. And, you know, I've come to salvation because of, of your preaching. And now his preaching style is a little bit different than Edward's. Um, we, we think about, well, I do anyway. I don't, I don't know how much you've thought about Edward's and Whitfield, but I used to think of Whitfield as the older, seasoned preacher evangelist and um, but but that's not so. He's actually eleven years younger than Edwards. He had that. It's the wig. That fire. It's, it's the, the wig. wig. That gives that impression. <laughs> He's twenty-two in that picture. Right? <laughs> I don't know when these pictures were taken, but uh, it's just to um, just give you an idea. I, I tried to find it. I didn't have a whole lot of time, so I apologize. So this may sound like I'm making this up, but I'm not. But I remember hearing. Um, in a public speaking class, uh, Whitfield given as an example because of the way that he supported his voice and projected, he could fill a space um, dramatically, like with the power of his voice. So to me, it's more than just a little bit different from Edwards. <laughs> like you know, Edwards is probably hunched, you know, over a podium, just reading the text, and and hopefully some volumes getting over the podium out to the people. But like Whitfield, this is you know. He's given a benediction in this picture that we see, but he was head up, projecting, and had a renowned voice in the way that he could use it. Not just renowned as in being able to speak in this room and everybody in the corners being able to hear, but he would preach to five, eight, even upwards of 10,000 people at one time. This is without microphones, without megaphones, without any of those artificial things. I don't know how they did it. Some people... Um, denied how he and, and folks like him, like Spurgeon and those guys, can project to that many people. But then they looked at the, the geography of where they set up, either on a rock or on a podium or somehow, and they can see that down the street you can fit thousands and thousands, and if you project enough, you can reach that many people. So he would do this week, not only week in and week out, but day by day. Uh, I believe he... Um, did over 3,000 sermons in either in his lifetime or in a 10-year span, which, you know, look at it, it averages out about three a day, preaching three times a day to thousands. Uh, so it's, it's quite amazing. Not only did he do this in England, but when he um, was captured by, by God, he wanted to take this word over to the, the colonies, and so he went over to Georgia in which there were a lot of thugs and anything else you want to throw in about Georgians, uh, which left a lot of orphans. And he saw all these orphans and he called them in and he wanted to make an orphanage for them, to to care for them. Uh, So he did that along with preaching the word. He had a different reputation than the Wesleys who also visited Georgia, and we'll, we'll talk about them in just a little while. But when he returned to England to raise funds for, um, for the orphanage, it was quite a different reception than he anticipated. Um, maybe we'll save that one for when we talk about John Wesley, because when, he, when Whitfield left England, he pretty much 
assumed, he brought, he volunteered John Wesley into fill, filling in for him. So when he left to the colonies, he said, you know, John, I, I don't think he picked up a phone, but he said, John, I'm, I'm leaving. Um, you're preaching Sunday. And so John Wesley reluctantly uh, filled in and we'll, we'll catch uh, the reception that Whitfield got when we talk about uh, Wesley and what he did on the British side. Now, other ministry notes, uh, churches, we talked about that. Uh, initially, he preached in churches, and then he wasn't allowed in churches. He preached on the outside, on the street corners. And he also uh, worked within societies, and we, societies are different within the Church of England than we think of today, that these are pretty much small groups, uh, home Bible study type groups, very similar to what the Wesleys um, put together. And sooner or later, uh, during their lifetimes, uh, those societies created by Whitfield and Wesley would merge. Uh, so he was very enthusiastic, not only about a one-time preaching, but following up and making sure that individuals have that opportunity to study the Word in close-knit communities. Um, there in the Holy Club, they met. he met both John and Charles Wesley. And like I said, he was... He volunteered Wesley as his backup preacher, and uh, their relationship became strained over the doctrines of grace, over Calvinism, and we'll explore what that meant to Wesley in a little bit, but for, for, for George Whitfield, I'm not exactly sure what it was that turned him on to the doctrines of grace, but very early on in his conversion, uh, he had no no qualms about the sovereignty of God. He, he was very wholeheartedly um, zealous for evangelizing based upon uh, the sovereignty of God. Now, what are some of the life lessons that we can learn from Whitfield? Uh, he was one of the first ones, again, this is not the same as an altar call, but he was one of the first ones to actually present people with an opportunity to trust Christ. It wasn't a dry sermon. It was a sermon that penetrated the heart and called for repentance. Not to be religious, but to come to Christ. The style that he used could, could be judged as um, you know, judging outward appearance. That uh, we could say, oh, if he's preaching that loud and that enthusiastically, maybe he's only looking for the emotional response. I don't think that's the case. Um, but we should be aware of that even in our own day that, uh, to be sure that the Word of God is preached because of its power, not because of the power of the preacher. And open-air preaching, one of the critiques against it is that it submits to no greater human authority. Within a church, you have elders and presbytery. Uh, there's church discipline. There are different ways of of handling ministries. But if you're out there preaching on the street, who do you answer to? When, say, someone has an objection to what you're saying, who can you go to for support saying, well, what I'm preaching from God's Word is true? Well, I look at God's Word and I think something different. So where's that authority lie? Uh, again, I don't think Whitfield himself was doing anything wrong because he was preaching the gospel in an age and a region where the gospel was not being preached. However, there is 
danger in carrying that too far. We must be sure to submit to elders, submit to the community of Christ around us in, a, in the local uh, embodiment. And again from Catherwood, Calvinist Methodists, and he was one, he was both Calvinist and Methodist because Methodist was a subgroup of the Anglican uh, Church. They were both said to combine the fire of Methodism with the logic of Calvin. Whitfield did that in spades. Any questions on George Whitfield? All right, we're going to parry a little bit with uh, John Wesley. Again, you'll note the similarity in conversion stories. He grew up very religious, but did not know Christ. He actually began with his brother, the Holy Club. And I have, I was going to research this, and I forgot to dig deep enough to find out who started it first? Was it Charles or was it both of them? But I believe Charles actually invited his older brother yeah. into the Holy Club. I think I remember reading that. Okay. Charles was there first or yeah. created it first and invited his older brother uh, by, I believe, three years. And uh, again, this is at Oxford. Uh, they, he was very um, zealous for religious duty. He wanted to do everything that God required of him. He even went on a missions trip to preach in Georgia. So that's again across the Atlantic to the colonies and uh, was not welcomed. He was not very highly successful because of some injudicious uh, circumstances that he sort of got himself into with, with young ladies, not in propriety, but he gave himself an opening to others to, to critique. And he did all this in his own power, in the, in the flesh. It wasn't until he returned, and he was on the boat with Moravians. And if you remember the Moravians, they were uh, a group of Reformed church in the uh, corner of Germany. And they very much believed God's Word and in repentance and faith. And there was a storm that arose. And during the storm, John Wesley was, was frightened, frightened to death almost. But he would look over to these families, I mean, women and children also, of Moravians. And what were they doing? Singing and praying. And he says, they have something I don't. So he spoke to one of their leaders and uh, actually gained a relationship with, with that leader. And uh, out of that, he started to think more about faith rather than duty. And uh, it, it's interesting. It's, it wouldn't be the exact... Um, advice that we would probably give that the, I can't remember the Moravian's name but he told John Wesley uh, you know, even though that you don't yet believe preach until you do now we, we think hold on now he's, he's preaching as a minister of the word of God yeah. but he doesn't yet believe in Christ and you're telling him to continue preaching until he does Probably not what we would do, but it did have God's intended effect. Yep. Where later on, upon reading uh, a public reading of Luther's introduction, I believe it was to Romans, mm -hmm. that uh, it, it really caught him. He finally understood. It clicked. And he said he has a, a strange warming. And from that point, uh, understood and believed that it was by Christ's work through faith and, and not through his own work. So we saw that in Georgia he was somewhat of an unsuccessful preacher and missionary. 
Upon his return, he was a reluctant substitute for George Whitfield, and uh, I can imagine who wouldn't be being volunteered in such a way. Uh, but I don't know that either of the Wesley brothers actually thought of themselves as very good public speakers or preachers, because it, it, really, it took them both a long time to warm up to the idea of, of preaching, of being a minister of a congregation. Most of what we know about uh, John Wesley is in conjunction with Methodism or the Methodist Church. And now this is where I want to invite David to really uh, jump in and start carrying uh, more of the load as John Wesley, the organizer of Methodism, and how it spread through his, his travelings. I don't know if you know the, the numbers of miles that he traveled in his lifetime. Uh, it, it was enough, and this is within England, either by foot or by horseback, it was enough to circle the globe ten times preaching the gospel. Ten times around the world in England preaching the word. Yeah, so Wesley and the Wesley family, they're coming out of a you know, pietist background. So they are you know, always seeking to practice their faith. That's a distinction of ultimately Methodism too. I mean, the method that we're getting the ism out of, was a particular method of how to be a Christian, how to live a life that bears fruit. So similar to issues that um, Edwards and Whitfield are thinking about, it's like, you know, what does it look like to, to live a Christian life ultimately? And so Wesley was wrestling with, um, and so as he and Charles begin, this holy club begin to think about these things, begin to write about these things and preach about them ultimately, this pi their pietism uh, transforms just a little bit uh, to be more specific about how to live an ordered way. And so Wesley is a hardcore type A. He is willing to order and to focus on order, and he's good at it. He's actually a really good PR guy, too, which we find out as we talk about Charles in just a minute, too. So Wesley begins and recognizes the need for order and organization for, um, for those kinds of connections to be there. As Methodism grows, as, that, as his uh, preachers trained under him begin to grow, he realizes that um, he had always wanted to remain within the Anglican Church. So it's a very similar situation to going back 200 years to the Reformation. You know, Luther didn't want to start a new thing. He wanted to stay within the church. Uh, but ultimately, that didn't work out. <laughs> it needed to have a change. And so, same thing for Wesley. He wanted to still be Anglican, to function within the Anglican Church. Um, but the things that he began to preach were different enough, and in fact, focused so much on responding to um, to faith that it, it it wasn't jiving with the Anglican Church anymore. And they had to form their own denomination, if you will. But over, our, over here, that was helped out by a little thing called the Revolution. Yes. Um, this, the historical context for all this stuff is so important, too. Um, and so, for Wesley, again, he realized that you know, all of a sudden, as he's separated from the Anglican Church and they need to have support, um, they couldn't find enough preachers uh, to fill the places that needed to hear the gospel. And that leads to the kinds of travel that he ultimately does. And uh, if you are familiar with the term, the circuit riders... Um, they ended up structuring their, their, their organization um, as, uh, in circuits and regions with superintendents and with preachers that would rotate 
um, even sometimes on the same day, preaching three times in three different churches across a circuit. Um, so on horseback, getting from one place at 8 a.m. to the next place by 11 a.m. and the next place by 1. You know, and so, and that was every week. Um, and so even now in, in contemporary Methodism, there's this you know, continuing rotation of the preachers. I don't know if you know anybody who's from a Methodist church or has grown up in one, but you, know, you, get, you, you start to love a guy or, or lady who has been ordained in a Methodist church, and then three years later, they're gone because it's part of the, um, the way that the church was structured, even in the 1700s, as uh, John is, is organizing things to efficiently preach the gospel in as many places as possible. Um, and so he, is, he excels at building this organization. And again, think about it. In the 1730s and 40s, in the colonies, um, there wasn't a whole lot of infrastructure yet intra-colony. And, and so some of the things that Wesley's beginning to do, organizing things, connecting churches together, even across colony lines, as it were, um, those are influential ultimately in, in how communities define themselves. Uh, during this historical period, you know, a church, from where they were coming from in England, the church and the state are equal. And so it's still hard to like, co- totally leave that baggage on the boat. When you come here and you establish your town, your community, there's a church building that is still important. You know, worship is important. And the, so the principles of having a church be central to a community's identity is still all there. And then so Wesley, is, as these communities are expanding outward, ever westward, as it were, um, there are needs for preachers. And so that's, he's on top of that. He recognizes the need for the organization, for the circuits to be established, for preachers, and in a lot of cases lay preachers, to go, be a horseback, to get to those places that need to hear the gospel preached. And so all that travel time, all that organization um, is a really key part of how John Wesley functions in America. But his theology uh, was something I got to dig deeply into over the last semester um, for a couple different reasons. Uh, we actually looked at methodologies uh, for how we worship. And so in doing that, one of the, in one of the sessions we talked about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And so this is a term for the fact that John Wesley, in his theology, used four uh, legs of a stool, if you will, um, to support uh, equally authoritative in his theology. And those are scripture, uh, reason, experience, and tradition. And tradition, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so scripture, reason, experience, and tradition are all equally authoritative in the quadrilateral. This will be a, an interesting, maybe a research project for someone. Um, one of the sites I read uh, actually indicated that he did not believe they were equally authoritative. He submitted to the Word of God as being primary, Yes. and then the other three uh, following afterward. Yep. Um, and it's one of those, it's another case of an ism becoming different than the originator's intention. Mm. So for Wesley, he did articulate a, a scriptural priority. Um, but ultimately, in, mm. in the course of the development of Methodism, um, all, the scripture be, began to be, it became like a checks and balances kind of thing, where reason then was how we interpreted the scriptures. Mm. So all of a sudden, you're bringing the scripture in line with that other leg of the stool, 
and it becomes it becomes the stool metaphor ultimately right. but initially you're right um, initially that was not the case but it's an ism and it becomes sometimes much different than the originator might have intended and so in that quadrilateral again that's it's very much driven by the historical context from the 1700s uh, reason the enlightenment um, there is a huge swell of people writing about uh, how important it is that we have reason. Thomas Jefferson says we fix reason in her seat so that we might you know, live out the rest of our lives in an ordered way. So he, Jefferson, being a deist uh, at best, uh, thought reason was you know, the ideal, that that's how we're supposed to think, that the right way to think is, is reason. And so for Wesley, he's, he's affected by this enlightenment thing happening all across Europe where he realizes there is value to thinking logically uh, with regard yeah. to reason. Um, and then using reason, certainly, and in, in understanding the scripture. Uh, but when it becomes an issue of interpreting the scripture by reason, then it gets a little iffy. But using scripture as an authority, using reason as authority, using tradition as an authority. This is, again, Wesley wanted to be an Anglican. He wanted to maintain that ecumenical relationship. And thus, he, he practiced what he then... Uh, made part of the quadrilateral. He, he wanted to, to maintain tradition, uh, to draw from the richness of tradition. Um, and so you see that play itself out in Methodism today, where there are so many traditional elements of their worship services, of their spaces, of their, the church year, the way that they structure mm-hmm. things. Tradition is a very important part of uh, how they function. And then um, experience. When we talked, when Neil mentioned the, the strange warming that, uh, that Wesley experienced, for him, that was pivotal. Um, and so he then, rec- he began to expect that to be normative for everybody's conversion experience. There should be uh, a warming of your heart. There should be an experience of grace, of love, a felt thing that plays an important role in how we live out our faith and thus how we do theology. So for experience, which again is almost kind of tied to existentialism, which grows out of the Enlightenment, and then we have reason. So for me, it was really important to kind of throw that out there, that, that cultural context, again, world history, has a direct bearing on how Wesley does theology using this quadrilateral four kinds of authority and building his theology. Um, ultimately, uh, Wesley is an uh, Arminian. And so Jacob Arminius did not agree with um, many points of Calvin's theology as he had articulated it in the 1500s. And so they went back and forth and there were two camps that ultimately developed. And those camps maintained themselves for hundreds of years and even to today. And so 200 years later, as Wesley is reading things, he feels much more in line with with, uh, what he understands to be the biblical uh, understandings of grace and of sovereignty. And so he... He likes Arminius. He's like, that dude's got it right. And Whitfield, obviously, um, was much more comfortable with the way Calvin understood uh, the scriptures. And so, thankfully, they agreed to disagree um, and ultimately maintained a good relationship, even though they were very much on opposite sides of the coin of sovereignty. But there are other people with whom Wesley would continue to vehemently disagree and, and not get along with, not agree to disagree. And so... This uh, controversy between you know, Calvin and Arminius is kind of reignited here in the, in the 1700s. 
as Wesley uh, brings about the importance of what he understands to be the important parts of Arminian theology. And this, this brings back uh, Whitfield into the picture. Yep. Remember, I, I told you about his reception on his return to England. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> when he left, I told you that people would stop him in the street, shake his hand, give him a hug, saying, you know, thank you for preaching the word and, and so forth. After however long he was in the colonies and his return, Wesley took over preaching uh, at his churches. People, instead of st stopping to shake his hand, would walk by him, stopping their ears for fear of hearing heresy, the heresy of Calvinism. So you can see just how, you know, Wesley really wanted to get his point across almost to the point of condemning that's another, Whitfield. That's another aspect of the PR thing that I'm about to talk about with, uh, with Wesley. He understood how to manipulate, for lack of a better term off the top of my head, people. Um, he knew how to market things. And so Wesley, I think, effectively marketed Arminianism um, in his pulpit supply service mm. uh, to the point that uh, it elicited that kind of response when Whitfield gets back. Um, I ran across this book called Calvin versus Wesley, uh, Bringing Belief in Line with Practice uh, by Don Thorson. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I actually got to skim as m most of it. I read deeply into very few parts. And one of them was on sovereignty, which has to do with this uh, prevenient grace, an aspect of Arminian theology that Wesley picked up on and really enjoyed. Um, prevenient grace is actually a, a term that you could use in either Arminianism or Calvinism, but it has to do with uh, God's grace given to us. So Calvin's understanding of what the Bible says is that as God gives us grace, uh, we respond to it by repentance and faith. Uh, and so for Arminius, as God gives us grace, it thus enables us to respond one way or the other. And so for Wesley, uh, his understanding of what it meant for grace to be prevenient, another word would be like proceeding. So God's grace that precedes our decision. So for Wesley, uh, prevenient grace means God gives us a grace that then, you know, awakens us to the fact that there is grace, and then we decide whether we're going to accept it or reject it. Um, and that would be an Arminian understanding of the salvific process. What, what happens when God extends grace and we uh, are saved? Am I correct in understanding that John Wesley is the first to coin this term as a way to explain uh, the salvation and conversion and grace through Arminius? I think... Popularly, yes, but I'm pretty sure that the term had been used beforehand, but not with this particular definition. Mm. Um, Thorson makes the point that uh, Wesley thought that Calvin was mistaken to believe that God's sovereignty so overwhelms the freedom of people as to make it non-existent. Um, and what that sentence illustrates... Wesley thought that Calvin was mistaken to believe that God's sovereignty so overwhelms the freedom of people as to make it non-existent. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of that, Calvin. That would be mistaken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Wesley thought Calvin was mistaken because he had misunderstood Calvin. And in a lot of cases, that's what has happened. Um, but the, the real crux of this book, though, is pointing out the fact that Methodist life, 
um, the pietism that influenced the way that Wesley would live out what it meant to be a Christian uh, looks more biblical than some Calvinists live. Uh, sometimes um, those who are following Calvin uh, do not bear the same obvious fruit as those who would follow Wesley. It's kind of the argument of the book. And so he lays out this really interesting contrast to kind of provoke that thought. And what does it mean to live a life that bears fruit that's biblically consistent? And uh, to then compare Wesley and Calvin was really interesting as a way to do that. Um, This last point of of Wesley's theology that has bearing all the way through to today, and especially today, is perfectionism. Uh, Wesley believed that sanctification process of being more holy, that all of us who have confessed that Christ is Lord and submitted to uh, his Lordship, we're, we're in that process. The Holy Spirit is making us more holy. Wesley understood that we could reach a point of perfectionism in this life, that it was possible to completely do away with the old man in this life. Not everybody was going to get there, obviously, but that it's possible, that the ideal existed, that it could happen. And so what that does to his theology, when that's the telos, when that's the direction and the end for what we're talking about, that means that uh, it, it gives a different energy to being a pietist, like being holy, trying hard to, you know, to be a better person through the power of the Spirit, but you're, you're working towards something. And it introduces an element of work that can then be very confusing for those who are seeking to understand God's grace. But Wesley understood that we can read a, reach a point of real super holiness uh, by our effort through the power of the Spirit, um, that that's possible. Um, I don't think that that's particularly biblically defensible, but um, there are many who do. In fact, every Pentecostal de- denomination would trace their theological roots back to Wesley. Any, anybody who's in a holiness tradition, the holiness traditions grow out of this same idea, that we can be holy. We're called to be holy as he is holy. Uh, we, are, we are thus equipped to be holy by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, we can, we can get this. We can not sin. But even to the point of not sinning for a whole day and even days in a row. Like, and that kind of ideal, I mean, that's really interesting to think about. But whether it's biblically defensible, whether it's reasonable, is a whole other conversation. So all that to say, Wesley is in some ways responsible for the explosion of charismatic Pentecostal uh, Christians in South America, uh, the, the church that is exploding even right now, um, the huge charismatic movements in, in South Korea, in Asia, um, all of those theological truths that they would affirm can trace them back to Wesley's understanding of holiness and perfectionism. Any questions on John Wesley? And finally, Charles. Um, very similar with, the, with his upbringing. And um, he also went on missions trips. Uh, again, not very successful because he was not converted. And then um, I, I would like to bring in his influence on his older brother, John, in each of these. Uh, the Holy Club, he invited his, his brother in order to build up this club. Uh, missions, he prompted John to, to take missions trips. And even in marriage, when John thought he found the one, Charles talked him out of it. And then as a knee-jerk reaction, John married someone else without Charles's 
blessing, which at that point he needed because they lived more separately than they did together. And Arminianism, uh, Charles had a great influence on John in bringing him into Arminianism, and from what I understand, towards the end of his life, Charles may not have been as stalwart in that uh, belief. So there's such an irony in that marriage thing, too, because I was telling Neil before we got here, uh, <laughs> Wesley ended up marrying a girl who was 23 years younger than him. <laughs> so here he is giving marriage advice to John, and then he marries a girl 23 years his younger. Thankfully, she was 23 when they got married, but that's pretty significant. Um, and of, co of course, culturally, they're at different places, but that's still really funny to me. Um, the, you know, Charles was on the same failed missionary trip. He, he also encountered the Moravians on the trip back. Um, what happened in 1737 uh, is that Wesley published a collection of psalms and hymns. Because he had actually written all these while he was in Savannah, not even regenerate, really failing as a missionary. He wrote a collection of psalms and hymns, and he published these. And then a bunch of these uh, started to appear back in North America as well, and, and they began to circulate. And then he, get, he begins to kind of tweak it a little bit more using some translations made from the Moravian songs that he had heard. Because he loved the fact that the Moravians sang enthusiastically. It wasn't like Anglican church back home where they sang by rote or a cantor was doing all the singing, but rather... The whole family was singing the whole song, all the tunes. They knew them, and they sang them fully. So that really, really impacted John, as well as Charles. And then in 1739, there is a ton of hymn writing happening, particularly by Charles. They write another collection, again edited and published. Um, so again, these guys were in, remember, the upper class back in England. Uh, Whitfield was a different cast. Uh, the, the Wesleys are part of a huge family, and they had a lot of connections, so they're able to publish books. Like, even in the internet age, where we can contact a publisher or go to a printer and print a book ourselves, uh, it's still not quite that easy to publish as quickly as they were able to publish these collected works of hymns. And as these hymns go out, as these hymns are written, they begin to uh, circulate and, and continue to bring about the theology that Wesley was preaching. And so we see in Charles, he at one point is rumored to have written as many as 9,000 hymn texts. And so as he is writing all of these hymn texts, they're all theologically based. They're all communicating a theology. And so here are these published works, and this is the PR of John Wesley. He helps circulate Charles's hymns. He helps get these published things happening. He's doing the editing. He's doing the marketing work of these hymnals, getting them circulated, getting them sold, making money in this process, and also propagating theology through the texts of these hymns. Um, there is amazing, long-lasting impact. Uh, even though John, he probably wrote about 27. Uh, his role as leader, administrator, teacher, publisher, admonisher, and counselor Again, all that organizing, all of that uh, type A personality stuff, he affects his type B brother by bringing that to bear in his life. And so um, Charles wrote at least 6,500, some have estimated 9,000, hymn texts, and then a bunch of tunes. 
And the tunes actually are kind of a big deal too. So here's what John Wesley provides as the preface to one of the collections of hymns that they put out. I gotta, I'm going to read the whole thing because I love it. John says, Learn these tunes before you learn any others. Afterwards, learn as many as you please. <laughs> so learn the hymn tunes first, and then learn whatever you want. Sing them exactly as they are printed here, without altering or mending them at all. And if you have learned to sing them otherwise, unlearn it as soon as you can. <laughs> sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up, and you will find it a blessing. Sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. Sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation, that you may not destroy the harmony, but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one clear, melodious sound. Sing in time. Whatever time is sung, be sure to keep with it. Do not run before or stay behind it, but attend close to the leading voices and move therewith exactly as you can. And take care not to sing too slow. This drawling way naturally steals on all who are lazy, and it is high time to drive it out from among us and sing all our tunes just as quick as we did at first. Above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually. So shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve of here and reward you when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. That is so amazing to me. Uh, I would love what does to, our music minister think of I know. <laughs> I would love to take time to read such things from my microphone, maybe. Um, but there are many, many more times that he begins to say that John and Charles communicate these types of things. And what to me is kind of a, a takeaway of that whole spiel from John Wesley, but also from the, the, the amount of hymnody that Charles Wesley puts out, is that uh, you know, Matt Papa says songs are sermons people remember. And so Charles Wesley and John and his 27 hymn texts proves this point. Um, when we sing a Wesley hymn this next, next couple of weeks, I'll try to point one out um, so y'all will be in on it. Uh, when I point out a, a Wesley hymn, uh, notice the, the theological movement, the fullness of um, what he is accomplishing in the course of that hymn. Um, typically, you could read a Charles Wesley hymn and, and proclaim the gospel, um, give the fullness of the gospel in a Wesley hymn. What's also interesting, though, is that all those nuances of John Wesley's theology, driven by the quadrilateral, those things are found as well um, in uh, Charles Wesley hymn texts. So, you know, they're, they're a Methodist understanding of what happens at the Lord's Supper or a Methodist understanding of uh, God's sovereignty. All those things are then going to be nuanced in those hymn texts, those theologies, those, are, those ways of understanding God are communicated through the hymnody. And so uh, we really begin to see in the 18th century, uh, it's, it's just before Wesley, Isaac Watts, 
and now Wesley and, and, and a few hymn writers to come in the very near future, you know, in the next couple sessions, I could jump in if I have time. Um, but hymnody begins to really teach the people. Uh, because again, it was all, it's only been 200 years since the people have been singing again. Um, it was Luther who said, wait a minute, why aren't the people singing? Why aren't the people reading in their language? And so it's from Luther and, and, then, to, and then to Calvin and, and Zwingli in the middle. And those guys that, that brought hymnody back to the people. And so that's not a whole long time in the grand scheme of things between the 1500s of the Reformation to now and the Great Awakening. So the hymnody is really kind of built up steam and now it's really starting to move and build momentum um, as Wesley presents all these texts for singing and focuses on these tunes. Any questions on Charles Wesley? I don't have a question, but I do have a comment on the Wesleys. I think it's important to note that Mother Susanna Wesley was very instrumental in their lives because she prayed, and I think she had, I want to say, 10 children. Yeah. Was, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> she was a first stugger. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up because I, I had intended to mention that uh, a lot of who we cover are, are men because they, they tend to dominate the, the ministry and, and theology in church history. <clears throat> um, but if you want to do some good studies, um, uh, Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, and Susanna Wesley, the mother of the Wesley boys, would be fantastic for you. Um, they, she did have 19, but only I believe, 10 survived out of uh, infancy, whereas both Edwards parents, as well as Edwards and his wife, they each had 11 children and they all survived into adulthood. Um, so Suzanne had a great impact on their education, their, um, their mindset for uh, doing the things of, of God. She prayed a lot. I think, um, you know, with a house full of that many children, it's hard to find quiet time. And uh, I believe her routine was that if she needed her prayer closet, it would be to sit down on the stool and take her apron and toss it over her head and pray. That was her prayer closet, her quiet time. So yes, uh, very instrumental. One of the most impressive things about her is she found time to spend individually with each one of the children mm -hmm. daily. Yeah. And so I, I think the testament to what influence a mother can have. And so when people think, well, I'm just a mother or I'm just a housewife. Huge impact. Know, it, it's much more than that. I've got three and I can't even do that. <laughs> All right, well, next time we're going to carry forward what we know of the Great Awakening, and we're going to look at the missionary movement and more happenings in the 18th century. And um, those are your chapters. If you want to read ahead, be sure to check out the, the links and the resources online. Again, if you have any questions, any comments, uh, you can post them online, and we'll, we'll be happy to respond. And if there are no other questions, David, I'll ask if you close us in prayer. God, we thank you very, very much for your word and for all of those who have heard the gospel and responded over history. All of our brothers and sisters that we are talking about and thinking about, thank you that they are a great cloud of witnesses uh, who spur us on to let go of the sin that's entangling, entangling us and run the race that you've called us to run, uh, to do the work that you've prepared for us to do. Thank you for this time to be together and to think deeply about um, these particular men and, and their families. I pray that uh, we would indeed uh, cast all of our affections uh, toward Jesus. 
uh, we would be so enamored and so in love with him that our passion would lead us uh, to evangelism. That we would be so shaped by uh, the gospel that uh, it would be evident that there would be fruit in our lives. Pray for um, our safety as we travel in the weather and that uh, you would continue to bring safety to Brad and Allison as they travel back from Australia. And uh, thank you for all the ways that you have knit our body together to grow up into Christ who is our head. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.